Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're still in 1 Peter. We're going to uh, take the whole chapter, the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, and work through it. And luckily, there's a clear theme that runs through the whole chapter. Okay, so it's a long passage, maybe a little bit longer than typical for us, but there's one theme that connects all these different verses together. And I think uh, if we follow it through, we will be able to solve a couple of these exegetical issues as well. But this is a good chapter for us to learn from, to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So here's my outline. Uh, I think this theme that connects all these verses is the theme of judgment. So first, let's look at judgment in the flesh or judgment in this life. Secondly, let's look at judgment to come or the final future judgment. And thirdly, let's look at judgment at hand or how we are to live in light of the judgment that is coming. So judgment in the flesh, judgment to come, 
and judgment at hand. All right, so as you look through this passage, and as we think about the kinds of judging that is happening now in this life, in this mode of existence, there are two kinds. First, Christians are judged by unbelievers, and this is mostly in verses 1 through 6. And then Christians are judged by God in verses 17 through 19. Now, if you don't understand the second part, I'll deal with it, okay? I'll try to do a good job, try to explain how the judgment of God begins in the church right now. But the first one, the judgment of unbelievers on Christians, is a familiar idea that we've seen already several times in 1 Peter. So let's consider verses 3 and 4 as we think about that. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then there's a list. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The logic is very clear. When the Gentiles, this is what Peter calls non-Christians, notice that a Christian no longer participate in their sinful practices, they are first surprised, and then they turn on the Christian. Now, you see, people in the world in general live for themselves. Without Christ, we in general feel free to indulge our passions. We prioritize sensual urges and pursue sexual passions by using others to please ourselves. This is the way of the world. We get drunk so that we can pursue our sinful inclinations even further than our reason or our conscience allow us to do. We refuse to submit to God, and so we pursue all sorts of idols. Now, such godless living for sinful human passions, which is common in the world, is contrasted here with a life for God's will, in accordance with God's will. Now, what is God's will for a Christian? It is to live for God and for others. It's to prioritize true worship. It's to obey God's law. It's to serve others. And if a Christian lives that way, if a Christian lives as a Christian, in other words, if a Christian lives as a Christian, we put ourselves at odds with the world. People in the world who see the difference and who want to justify living according to their own passions respond by judging Christians, by condemning us. Now in verse 6, we read that Christians are judged in the flesh the way people are, meaning that it is common in the flesh, in the human existence on earth during this time, it is common for a Christian to be judged by an unbeliever. This is the judgment of the world on the Christians who refuse to participate in its flood of debauchery. Now, during Peter's time, to be an uncompromising Christian, to be a faithful Christian, meant that you could not be unrecognized by others as a Christian. So if you wanted to live out the Christian faith in Peter's day, everybody around you would be surprised, and everybody around you would be appalled that you are not participating in these common practices of your neighbors. There are different times in human history Sometimes 
Our cultures are more in line with some of the moral principles of Christianity, and sometimes that contrast is not as stark. But I think we certainly are now getting into the time where it's going to be similar to Peter's day, where to be an uncompromising Christian will mean that we will be recognized as a Christian, that the world will see the distinction, they will see the difference, and if we refuse to participate in the common practices of our world, we will be maligned. Let me illustrate this tension, this perception, by quoting from a letter. This is a second century document that describes the lives of the early Christians and the response of the world to them. And as I read it, I wonder if this sounds relevant to you today. I wonder if it sounds contemporary and modern because it does to me. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. However, things have fallen to each of them. And it is while following the customs, the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry, like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are spoken ill of and yet are justified. They are reviled but bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred." I wish this was true of us today, that there is a stark contrast and yet a surprise and wonderment at these Christians. But it is no question in all of our lives that if you live according to Christ and you're willing to suffer for that, you're willing to experience this tension that you will have judgment from the world. That's the first kind of judgment in the flesh. But there's the second one, and this one we have to unravel. Let's consider this judgment of God in the flesh toward the church. Look at verses 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
So does this passage teach that God is using the suffering of this life to punish Christians? When we suffer, should we conclude that God is punishing us? He's starting with the church. He's going to move to the world, but he's starting to punish the church first. I don't think so. Now let me show you what I think this passage means. Pay attention to the context. The preceding verses clearly show that the suffering in view is not caused by the sins of Christians. In fact, Peter is careful to say, don't suffer as a murderer or, or a thief or a meddler. I like that he puts those in the same list. Don't suffer because of your own sin, Peter says, but suffer because of your faithfulness to Christ. Now, these people that seems like are being judged by God, God starting with the church, they are sharing in Christ's sufferings. They're insulted for his name. Now, so what does Peter mean when he says that God's judgment begins at the household of God? Well, judgment is not necessarily punishment. Judgment is the action of a judge. It is an assessment of guilt or innocence. It is a pronouncement by a judge. You can judge something to be good just as much as you can judge something to be bad. What kind of judgment does God pronounce on his church suffering under the judgment of the world for Christ? It cannot be condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It cannot be punishment for sin because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It can only be the exoneration and justification of his suffering church. In other words, if we suffer as Christians for Christ, we are judged by God to be genuine Christians, accepted and loved by him. So I am taking this judgment to actually be a positive judgment. When it says that God begins his judgment with the church, yes, God begins his evaluation, his assessment of people with the church, with his people, and what he finds in the church among those who are suffering for Christ is genuine believers. And so the judgment is the positive judgment of accepting them as his children. Now look at the whole context and the language of this passage. Look at the words that Peter is using towards believers. These are not people under judgment. Verse 12, beloved. Verse 13, rejoice and be glad. Verse 14, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, don't be ashamed. Now these words support the judgment of God being positive and not negative. Now, here's Peter's logic. God's judgment begins in the church. Genuine believers are marked by suffering for Christ under the judgment of the world. God's judgment on the suffering Christians is that they are saved, cleared by the judge. Now, if it takes suffering to be judged as saved for those who believe the gospel, because that's the mark your suffering as a Christian is the mark of your Christianity. And if it takes suffering to be judged as saved, 
for those who believe the gospel? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? When the Lord is done with the church and He moves on to judge the world, what justification will they have? The contrast is between suffering for Christ now to reveal in that test, to reveal that a person is a genuine Christian, or suffering in eternity under the judgment of God as an ungodly sinner. I think what Peter is saying is this. When you suffer for Christ, not as a murderer, not as a meddler, but when you suffer for Christ, when you find that your Christianity is at odds with the world, when you feel the pressure and the opposition of the world around you, take it as a mark of God's judgment on you that you have been judged as His own, as a saved person, as a person on whom the Spirit of glory and of God rests. Now let me explain another verse to try to put it all together here. And then I'll tell you a story. Now look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? I think this verse supports the idea that God's judgment on the suffering church is a judgment of approval. Christ suffered to rid the world of sin. Jesus suffered in the flesh to rid the world of sin. We should have the same mindset and be willing to suffer ourselves for refusing to indulge in sin. So when we suffer while doing the right thing, we align ourselves with God against sin. I think this is what Peter means when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever suffers while resisting sin has already broken their allegiance to sin and no longer lives for sin. Here's an illustration. When a Russian citizen today or an Iranian citizen today comes out to protest the oppression of their government and suffers physical harm, loss of job, or even imprisonment, when that person does that, they have broken their allegiance to the regime. This is the decisive break with the regime. It can be said that whoever has suffered the consequences for protesting has ceased from supporting the regime. And so a Christian who has suffered the consequences for living consistently as a Christian in a hostile world has ceased from supporting the regime of sin. And that is the evidence in the court of God used to pronounce the person as genuinely reconciled to God and saved from divine punishment. Now, I want to be clear on this because these couple places are, are confusing and controversial, but I think if you see the context of judgment, I actually think it makes a lot of sense. What Peter is saying is that Christians are judged by the world because they're different, because they're following Christ and not sin. Jesus looks at the church and he judges the church as his own because they have chosen Christ and not sin. And because they're suffering for their allegiance to Christ. That's a mark. That's evidence. This is something that is used in the divine court to say, look, these are my people. They have believed in me. 
They treasure me so much they're willing to suffer for me because I suffered for them. So when you look at your own life, and when you look at the lives of others, what we're looking for is doing the right thing when it costs you something. Suffering for Christ when there is actual opposition, when you lose something, but you still stick with Christ. And Peter says, that's when you know that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, let me tell you a story. I heard it in a sermon by D.A. Carson. Carson said he knew a man in England who came from a strong Christian home, good family, brought up in the church, brought up in the faith, professed Christ early in life, was following Christ, lived a good life, went to university, became a leader of a campus ministry there, married a godly Christian woman, became a medical missionary, working with those affected by leprosy in North Africa. He then returned to England with his wife and, and kids, went to a Bible church, was recognized as a mature believer, was made an elder in that church. And up until then, everyone around him approved of everything he did and praised him as a committed Christian, husband, father, minister, and leader. And then he announced that he was leaving his family, moving in with his nurse, and moving to a different town to start his own practice. And everybody was shocked. And his pastor and others in the church tried to talk him out of it, but he refused to acknowledge that there was anything wrong with his decision. And so he moved on. He moved to another town. He started a medical practice there. He left his wife. He left his children. He left his church behind. And nobody could figure out what, what happened there. How can that happen? So Carson, some years later, asked the pastor how the pastor could explain what happened to that man. And the pastor said that he thought, and he was now convinced, that the man was never a genuine Christian. Carson was surprised to hear that, and he said, well, I mean, look at his life. I mean, all his life, he, he did the right thing. He followed Christ. He sacrificed for Christ. But the pastor said that, think about his life and think about this man who never had to make a choice for Christ that actually cost him anything. All these sacrifices, so-called sacrifices he made, were expected, and he was praised for them. Think about it. When he professed Christ, his family cheered. When he led the campus ministry, everyone there respected him. When he served as a medical missionary, everyone in his circles admired him for it. When he married a nice girl, everybody at the wedding cheered. When he became an elder in the church, everyone in the church looked up to him. Only when he decided to leave his family, no one cheered for him, and he was surprised. He has always chosen to do what he wanted, and everybody agreed with him up to that point, but now he needed to make a costly choice by staying with his family in spite of his urges, in spite of what his flesh wanted to do, to deny himself and to choose to serve others for the sake of Christ, and he was not willing to do that. And because he has not suffered in the flesh, he has not ceased from sin. And thus he was shown not to be a genuine Christian, according to that pastor, but only a person who for a while was able to align his desires with the approval of other people. Now, I don't know. Was the person a genuine Christian or not? I don't know. 
We don't know. But is it a common scenario? Yes. It is a common scenario to live for Christ as long as everybody around you generally agrees with you. As long as it doesn't cost you much or anything. But there comes a time in every Christian's life where we have to make a choice. Where we have to say, I will follow Christ even though that creates tension. Even though that calls for, it calls for opposition. Even though I might lose something important. Whether it's my family or my, my job or money or reputation. And you make that choice. And when you make that choice, when you suffer in the flesh, you cease to sin. You say, I'm not going to live for sin. I'm going to live for Christ. And the Lord looks at you and he says, the judgment starts with the household of God and you are one of my children because you are suffering for me when it's costly and you're choosing me over sin. Now, secondly, in this passage, we see judgment to come. And I'll be fairly brief on this point. While it may feel like the world is right and we should just go along with their practices and avoid unnecessary suffering, many Christians are tempted to do that. They too, the world, those who, who tell us to go along with what they're doing, they too will be judged by God. Now look at verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who reject Christ and pursue their human passions are at odds with God's will. And they will receive his fair and just judgment on the last day. The Lord will judge everyone. Everyone will have to give account for what they have done in the flesh. Now look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. And I think Peter means that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, but were alive when the gospel was preached to them. So in other words, he's saying, the Lord is the judge of the living and the dead, and whether you are alive now or dead you will still be judged based on the gospel. And because they embrace the gospel, even though they were judged by the world, when they died, they continued to live with God in the spiritual reality. And one day, when the final judgment of God is pronounced on the living and the dead, nobody escapes his assessment, those who have embraced the gospel will be vindicated by God himself. They're not vindicated here. They are judged according to the flesh here. But when God judges, finally, they will be vindicated by Him and will live in His new creation forever. Now, the difference between punishment and vindication on the judgment day is our acceptance or rejection of the gospel. It's not only in verse 6 that we read about it, but also in verse 17. Those who do not obey the gospel of God should expect nothing but fair punishment for their sins in eternity. Those who live for themselves now will only have themselves to blame in eternity. Those who reject the will of God now will be forced to accept it in eternity. 
But how does the gospel help that? Well, the gospel is the good news. It's a pronouncement by God that he accepts his son's suffering and death as satisfaction of his justice and as just punishment for the crimes of sinners. That's the gospel. It's a pronouncement that Jesus died. He suffered in the flesh for sin, and he did so righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So the gospel is a way to God, is a way towards vindication and not punishment, because Jesus was put to death as our punishment for our sins. But he was raised for our justification, for our vindication, for the proclamation that we belong to God, that we have been reconciled to him. So now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And on that day when God judges the living and the dead, those who turned away from sin and looked to Christ for salvation have nothing to fear. They will receive final vindication because of Jesus who suffered for them. But those who turned away from Christ and looked after themselves will be judged and sentenced to eternal punishment by God. The gospel is the dividing line. If you embrace the gospel, if you embrace that Jesus died for you and he took your punishment, there's no punishment left for you. But if you reject that Jesus took your punishment, then you still have your punishment. Do you believe the gospel? What do you expect to happen on the day of judgment of the living and the dead? Whether you are alive for it or you die and you're brought back to life to face him, what do you expect will happen? Will you be able to justify yourself by what you have done in the flesh? Will you be able to say, I have done everything right? I have never broken God's law. I have never served myself when I had a chance to serve someone else. I have never pursued my human passions at the expense of someone else. You know, an amazing thing about us self-righteous people, those of us who believe that I can justify myself before God, is that we cannot even justify ourselves to ourselves. If you think about your own internal moral standard, which is much lower than God's, it's much lower, because we have made all sorts of allowances for ourselves. But if you even compare your life to that, to your own moral standard, you will find that you don't measure up to that. And so when you stand before God, before God who can see everything, and who's using a different standard for you, what will you say? And the only thing that God gives us to say is Jesus. Jesus. I am justified by his blood. I am justified by his resurrection. And there is no hope for me unless what Jesus did was accepted by God as effective for me. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is in, in it, unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. 
We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. He goes on to say, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So it is in Christ. So it is for any Christian who has suffered in the flesh, has ceased to sin, has aligned himself with Christ by faith. When we appear before God, when we stand before him, and we are inspected, and we are assessed, we will be judged worthy of his presence because of Jesus. And finally, judgment at hand. I think the core of this passage is very practical, and it teaches us how to live considering that this judgment is coming. How are we to live as Christians in light of the coming judgment and vindication? In verse 7, it says, the end of all things is at hand. And then it tells us, therefore... So considering that the end of all things is at hand, meaning the next play, the next stage of God's redemptive history is judgment, is Jesus' return. We've worked through all the stages, and the next thing is Jesus is returning. And he'll return in glory to judge the living and the dead. So if we know that's the next thing coming, how should we live now? And Peter says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. I really like this phrase. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. In fact, I'm going to run through this passage, okay? This, this, and I'm going to give you very specific, practical things to do. But I'm also going to put it on realm, on a list of meditations for you for this week. I've done this before. I called it lunches for your week. So too much food here at this table. So I'm going to spread it out for the week. And I'd like you to meditate on each of these aspects of what Peter tells us to do, how he tells us to live in light of the coming judgment of God, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. And he tells us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's one good meditation. Self-controlled means that we are not to pursue our sinful passions any longer. Verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What Peter is saying, that indulgent sinful desires must be left in the past for a Christian. 
He says, enough is enough. You have sinned enough before you came to Christ. Don't go back to that. Don't continue to sin. Don't continue to indulge your sinful desires. Enough is enough. If there is sin in your life right now, confess it, repent of it, and move forward. Leave it in the past where it belongs. Sober-minded means that we are to think clearly about our life before God. Be sober-minded. Think clearly. Think about what pleases Him. What should we do even if others criticize us for it? How should I live even if it causes conflict with my unbelieving neighbors? Think clearly. Don't give in to confusion. Don't be deceived. Don't give in to distractions and numb your mind so you don't think clearly. Think clearly and put your life in line with the reality you see in Scripture. And then Peter gives us these four practical implications, very quickly, of being self-controlled and sober-minded. One, pray. Pray. Verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Think clearly. Control your passions so you can pray. Now, while people in the world pursue lawless idolatry, there's contrast here, we pray to the one true God. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. We bring our needs to a loving father. If you are self-controlled and sober-minded, you will be praying. Jesus told us to watch and pray. As the day of judgment approaches... As the end of all things is at hand, we watch and we pray. Sober-minded, awake, alert, praying. That's the first application. The second one is to love. To love, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. When we love each other earnestly, not half-heartedly, but intentionally, actively, We forgive each other. And by forgiving each other, by by loving each other, we don't allow our sins to cause as much damage as they can. That's what it means that love covers a multitude of sins. We don't let it grow. We don't let it develop. We don't let it hurt us as much as it can. This kind of earnest love, love that's enduring, love that's overcoming, love that's patient, love that's forgiving, It diffuses the power of sin in the church. And it doesn't let it ruin Christian relationships. We must be quick to forgive and refuse to hold a grudge. Do you need to forgive someone today? Do you need to reconcile with someone today? Even if they wronged you, your love can cover their sin. You can still forgive them. Number three. Open your home and your heart to others. Open your home and your heart to others. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Share your home, share your resources with others, and do it sincerely and graciously. Hospitality is one of the forgotten Christian virtues, but it is at the very heart of gospel living. Jesus, who opened his home to me, wants me to open my home to others. 
Jesus, who shared his wealth with me, wants me to share my wealth with others. As we wait for our true home to be revealed, we graciously open our temporal homes to others. Do you practice hospitality? And do you do it without grumbling? Sincerely, joyfully, graciously, wanting to share what you have with others. And number four, serve. Serve. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. While people in the world serve themselves and they indulge their sinful passions by using others, we serve others. Our love covers multitude of sins. Our hospitality includes our homes and our hearts, and we use our gifts to serve one another. Now, God gives us different gifts, and this is a very short list of gifts in Scripture. Peter just divides it into the speaking gifts and the servant gifts. But there are other passages you can go to to have a larger list. But whatever your gift is, whether it's a speaking gift like teaching or prophecy or exhortation or encouragement, you use it to serve others. And if you have a servant gift like mercy or healing or administration or generosity, you use that to serve others. But all these gifts in the church are meant to build up the church and to serve others, all of them. They're all other-centered. None of them is supposed to be for my benefit, for my exaltation, for my reputation. They all come from God, and they're all good for the church. Speaking gifts come from God's Word. Servant gifts are done in God's strength. So let me ask you, are you a consumer in the church? Or are you a contributor in the church? Do you show up only to receive? Now, there's much to receive. And I hope we all come in expectation that God will do something in our lives, that God will serve us, that God will give us something, often using other people in their gifts. That's the right expectation. But if that's the only expectation, you're just a consumer. And you live the way the world lives. But if you come also to serve with your gift, whatever God gave you, whether it's speaking or serving, whatever God gave you, if you come to serve with that, looking for opportunities to help others, to help and strengthen and serve others, then you're living like a Christian who knows that the end of all things as at hand, self-controlled and sober-minded. And as we live these kinds of self-controlled and sober-minded lives, we do it in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. And as we think about the day when Jesus returns in glory, we want to live in a way that brings some of that future glory into our experience even now. That's why Peter breaks out in worship. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the middle of the book, in the middle of the chapter, he's not going to be a disciplined writer who waits to include it at the end, where it's supposed to be, to neatly wrap things up. 
Oh, no. He knows that this kind of life, this kind of self-controlled, sober-minded life that is judged by the world but approved by God, in light of the promise of vindication at the end, this kind of life is a life of glory. It's a life of worship. It's a life that naturally breaks out into worship and doxologies and singing and gratitude. So as you live this kind of life, self-controlled and sober-minded, even as you're being judged by the world for it, even as you suffer for Christ's name, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In your suffering as a Christian, you get to taste the glory that is to come. Oh, it's just a little taste, isn't it? But it's enough to keep you going. Any amount of sacrifice, any degree of opposition, any measure of suffering is worth the glory that will be ours in Christ. And God in His grace allows you to experience it even now as the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I think this is experiential language. I feel the spirit of glory on me. The Spirit of God is present as I suffer for Christ, as I make difficult choices, as I open my home and my heart, as I love and cover multitude of sins against me, as I forgive, as I serve others, as I do that, as I pray, as I do that, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory rests on me and lets me taste some of that glory to come. So live in a way that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, suffer as a Christian, not as an evildoer, suffer as a Christian, suffer in a Christian way, suffer as Christ suffered, suffer for his sake, and see your suffering for Christ as God's approval now, even as you wait for full vindication later. Don't lose sight of the coming judgment and the coming glory. Be self-controlled, and sober-minded.